Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A photo exhibit along the fence surrounding the Atlanta Waterworks tells the story of Blandtown, a neighborhood on Atlanta's west side, founded in 1872 by the formerly enslaved Felix Bland. Artist Gregor Turk conveys the history of this once thriving black community. In red, white, and black, the exhibition we'll hear about later this hour. First, Hark Journal is hosting the Bard's Birthday Bash a three-night Zoom event celebrating Shakespeare's influence with a variety of guests. Each of the artists and authors will share how Shakespeare's writing helped inspire their careers and special projects. I spoke with the co-hosts and organizers of the event, Michael Van Asch, the creator of Hark. Journal, and Erica Cantley, an author and educator. Here's Michael describing his Shakespeare moment. For me, mine has been fairly recent. In fact, um, this all started as a COVID-related project with theaters uh, shutting down, obviously, and I'm a marketing, was a marketing director at a theater company here locally, and so not a lot to do during the uh, initial six months of COVID, so I happened to be watching an online version of Coriolanus from the Stratford Festival in Ontario, and that quote, action is eloquence, really hit me, and I decided to say, I need to apply that to myself and get off the couch and do something. So, yeah, just um, one of those things, and, and I figured that if Shakespeare quotes could inspire me, maybe they could inspire others, so I started the Hark Journal, harkjournal.com, and we've been doing a two-minute email every morning ever since. It's a, it's a take on Shakespeare's wisdom to help you get off on the right foot every day, and it seems to be growing by leaps and bounds, so I think people are enjoying it. Hmm. Thinking about that quote from Coriolanus, it seemed to have added meaning for action, activism, during a time of reckoning as well. Mm. Yes, Absolutely. I, it, it applies so much to the world in this in this time, doesn't it? 
Yeah. Erica, please tell us about your relationship to Shakespeare. Well, my Shakespeare moment dates a lot further back. I was very fortunate to study with the great James Shapiro at Columbia. That was my real first exposure or uh, turn on to Shakespeare in his classroom. And from there, I went and decided I wanted to be an English teacher as kind of a second career. And then I had 16 years of getting to teach Shakespeare plays to high schoolers, which was incredible. And then jumping forward, basically, I was always someone who thought the classics are really valuable. And I want the students to understand why we study them as a base, even though we know there's a lot more out there and a lot more relevant stories today, in a sense, and that, you know, we're not going to have the curriculum just be all pale and male, as they say, but that, (laughs) but let's not throw out Shakespeare, let's not throw out the Odyssey. So I was always thinking in that vein. And then I was teaching Hamlet as I do every spring and my dad was dying. And so I had this incredible experience of seeing more in this play that I had already taught for years than I ever had before. Things just became more real when I had my own dead dad, if you will. So then I spent the next five years writing a book about that. And that's how Michael and I met and started um, kind of our non-traditional Shakespeare friendship because we both are coming from it. You know, I don't consider myself a scholar, but we're both big fans. And we've learned a lot this summer, that's for sure. And I agree with you about the action as far as activism. There's a lot to be said with Shakespeare and what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, and I like the way you framed the importance of being contemporary, being relevant, acknowledging that the world has changed a whole lot in the past several hundred years, but not rejecting what came before us simply because it's Eurocentric. Right. Yes, good point. Michael, I've seen your Park Journal described as like the skim, but for Shakespeare nerds. (laughs) (laughs) What inspired you to start the newsletter? You know, it was it was really that quote again, getting off the couch and doing something, take action. Action is eloquence. And so, you know, what I didn't mention was I anyone can look at Shakespeare quotes or any famous quotes and, and people throw them around all the time. But my interest was saying, what can we get out of these quotes that are four or five hundred years old? How can we relate them to today? And that ties into just what we were talking about. And, and what is what does it mean? A certain quote from a certain play? What does that mean now in this day and age? What can we glean from it to be able to use on a daily basis? And so that's kind of where I was headed with this, uh, not just simple quotes. It was like, how does this uh, replay for us every day? And so I, you know, I also have a couple of freelance writers that have helped me out as well. And so we keep things going on a, on a weekly, well, a daily basis, not on weekends, but every day. And um, yeah, it seems to be helping folks. At least I get some pretty nice comments. Well, with Shakespeare's having written 38 plays, you have a lot of good material to work from. Mm -hmm. But how do you distill 
these profound thoughts into a two-minute daily read? Yeah, it's it's not easy. It's really just taking what hits me or the writers, and, I, and then I edit, taking what hits them on the day that they're preparing that. And we obviously do a lot in advance and then have it scheduled. But it's really kind of a personal journey through these quotes and, and how it relates. And sometimes I have no idea where it's going to start when I start with a quote. So it's just a, it's a real experience for me of going through it. And I think that's what people are responding to as well, that it's it's lighting up something in a different way, possibly than they thought of or when they read it in high school or saw their last play over a year ago and relating to it in that way. Erica, you mentioned you taught high school English for 16 years. How did you make Shakespeare appeal to the students in your classroom? Mm. Oh, wow. Again, I can actually connect this to what Michael was just saying about these quotes and these lines, because Shakespeare is infinitely adaptable and practical. The stories may seem either a little old fashioned or the setting may be one that they're not used to, but things like love, jealousy, one of the biggest for high school students is oppressive parents. And so specifically with Hamlet, there's a lot of horrible things that end up happening because the parental figures are the ones in charge and they're forcing their agenda on the kids. Well, the kids can really relate to that. And then also say with Much Ado About Nothing, which was a play that I taught a lot, I taught every year, that is about getting together and wooing and liking someone or pretending you don't like someone, kind of triangulation between people. And so they get that. So basically what I would always do is figure out exercises every day, whether it was journaling exercises or impromptu acting exercise where they would explore these general themes without the Shakespeare setting. When that's our base, then we go into, well, here's this story and let's look at what happens. I mean, it's not easy for anyone, let alone young teenagers, to deal with that verse and with iambic pentameter. How do you get past that with the students? Well, I will say I have to give a shout out to the Folger Shakespeare Library people. Uh, They do a lot of wonderful teaching workshops. And their overall theory is that the kids need to be speaking the language. They need to be speaking the text. They need to be up and speaking every day. So if that's the initial premise for me every day in class, that's a good start. Building an affection for the experience. I mean, oh, we're going to get up and and recite now. Everybody, almost everybody groans, including sometimes me if I'm in a workshop. When you get up and you do it and you embody the language and you have gesture, there is some kind of something that happens and it's magic and it becomes memorable too. Kids, They know rap, they know verse in music. So if you show them the connections between what Shakespeare wrote and what their bards, if you will, are writing today, um, that helps too. Oh, that's fantastic. Are you familiar with Will Power? Yes, 
Yes. Mm. He was one of the last people I interviewed in person when we were working in the radio station building. Mm -hmm. And he had done an adaptation for our regional theater, for the Alliance Theater stage of Richard III. And he incorporated hip-hop elements, and it just all seemed so natural. And he got kids so excited about the work, and they really took off from there. Yeah, and we have one of our guests on, on one of the three nights that we're doing this event coming up is Devon Glover, who's also known as the Sonnet Man. And he's a teacher and rapper and poet and playwright. And he performs Shakespeare's sonnets through hip hop and tours around schools and theaters worldwide, really. He's from Brooklyn as well. And he does a phenomenal job. So the Sonnet Man or the sonnetman.com if people want to look it up. But he'll be a guest on our third night, along with so many other amazing people. Can you tell us a few more? A few more of the guests. Absolutely. You know, we have people from all over the United States, including Canada and the UK, but we also have some local talent as well. A gentleman named Thomas Brazel, who's an actor and a film producer here in uh, the Atlanta area, is doing a Shakespeare-inspired web series called Infinite Jest. We have Deborah Ann Bird, who's the playwright of the one-woman show Becoming Othello, A Black Girl's Journey. We have various scholars that have written different books, Paula Morantz Cohen of Human Kindness, What Shakespeare Teaches Us About Empathy. And we even have a gentleman, uh, Angus Vale, who is a founder of something called the Container Globe. And he's an entrepreneur who is building an exact replica of Shakespeare's globe through shipping containers. <laughs> and he's probably going to build more than one. And, and the pictures of it are absolutely phenomenal. So we have so many different people, more actors and directors and people doing films and podcasts, the Hamlet podcast with Connor Hanrady and just so many others. And one other person here that sticks out to me too is, if, I don't know if you know her, work Lois, but Maya Gosling, she's the artist and author of Good Tickle Brain. She calls herself the world's foremost and possibly only stick figure Shakespeare comic artist. (laughs) (laughs) And they are wonderful. I mean, and and it, it is a fantastic way to learn Shakespeare, too. This sounds like you could have a month-long celebration, (laughs) not just once a week in April. Erica, you mentioned the memoir you wrote, which is set at the high school where you taught. Would you tell us a bit more about teaching Hamlet as my father died? Mm, Yes, thank you. Well, the, the book itself toggles basically between the teacher-student relationship in the classroom, the text of the play itself, and then my relationship with my dad. The part that's about my dad, it's twofold because I'll have these flashbacks about you know memories from my life with him. And I will also have these moments that interrupt my teaching day, either mentally or actually, about him dying. I was blessed to be able to go down to Costa Rica and see him one more time before he died. And and so that's factored in. And then we would keep getting phone calls. Um, But I knew when I left that I would never see him again, which was extremely difficult. And then, you know, I would just keep wondering, well, is it going to be today? Is it going to be today? And 
the experience of standing up in front of your audience, showing up to work and doing your job when you're going through the worst thing you've ever gone through, it was super powerful and very specific and very personal and yet quite universal, I think. When you just have these moments where you say, oh, is that what this is like? Is that what that person went through when their dad died? Is that what Hamlet means when he says, my gorge rises out it? When he thinks about the corpse of his father being in the earth? Oh, yes, because when you think that that person is dead and gone, you do involuntarily kind of want to throw up. Hmm. So I saw a lot of parallels and, and I felt funny because, you know, in kind of the teaching world, it's very cliche to say, oh, every time I teach a play, I find something new. But this was over the top. <laughs> I really found a lot of new things. Well, it is certainly a testament to the universality of Shakespeare, the ongoing meaning. And I think you both have presented very compelling stories, personal stories based on that. How can our listeners join this celebration? They can go to harkjournal.com. That's H-A-R-K, I should say, harkjournal.com. And uh, they can register there. All three nights are free. They're the Monday nights, first three Monday nights in April, the 5th, the 12th, and the 19th, 7.30 Eastern time. And we'll have six guests per evening, six different guests. And they'll talk about all the great things they've got going on and how Shakespeare has affected them. And, you know, we'll take it into a little bit of a discussion then, too. So it's really a celebration, not just of the bar. That's that's the reason, to, you know, it's his birthday month. That's the reason to get together. The real purpose is to show what people are doing and show the different impact it's had on people and not always positive uh, and just see where right. things go with it. I think if you're a Shakespeare fan, you'll really enjoy it. But if you're a fan of of creative people doing neat things, it's also going to be really, really good. Well said, Michael. And if, if I may just add, Lois, if any of your listeners consider themselves Shakespeare skeptics, this is not just a celebration of his existence, as, as Michael said. It's a celebration of what he has given us, the opportunities, including some to bang up against these plays and to have conversations about what's problematic about it. And the fact of the matter is, in today's world, it probably should have been happening all along, right? But now that we're more aware and more in conversation, we have to talk about the nature of colonialism. And that's why Shakespeare's work was initially so widespread and considered the height of literature. But he still holds up and he's infinitely interpretable it's for everyone. Everyone is welcome. And I think what guests will show and what the viewers will see is that people can make Shakespeare their own. We've got people who are telling all sorts of stories from all sorts of cross-cultural backgrounds through Shakespeare as a starting point. And I think that's super exciting. I think so, too. And I think this conversation has been exciting. Erica Cantley, Michael Van Osh, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lois. I appreciate it. Thank you, Lois. It's really been a pleasure. Erica Cantley and Michael Van Osh are the co-hosts 
guests of the Bard's Birthday Bash. Michael is also the founder of the HarkJournal.com. Erica Cantley wrote, Teaching Hamlet as My Father Died. You can find more information about the virtual events of the Bard's Birthday Bash on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about an outdoor photo exhibit depicting a West Side Atlanta neighborhood dating back to 1872. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The bland town area of Atlanta was anything but bland. The neighborhood was a thriving black community from 1872 until the 1950s. The artist Gregor Turk spends much of his time in bland town at his studio. He's mounted an outdoor photo exhibition in the Upper West Side neighborhood around Howell Mill Road and Huff Road to raise awareness of our city's complicated past concerning race. The photo installation is called Red, White, and Black. Gregor Turk joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's a pleasure to be with you. Bland Town takes its name from a man named Felix Bland. Who was he? Well, Felix Bland was the son of Samuel and Viney Bland. And uh, back during the uh, short period of Reconstruction, they were able to buy uh, four acres of land for about $200. And the neighborhood was named after Felix. There's another story that's been a long-held story, and that is that Viney Bland was actually... Uh, slave owner's wife, and she gave the land to Felix and uh, Tuskegee Institution Education, which he lost the property within uh, a few years. But that is not true. There was recent primary research done and found out the, the, the documentation for the original story that I told you. So the original four acres belonging to Felix Bland's family became the center of this vibrant African-American community. How would you describe Bland Town at its height? Well, I think it's interesting to note that the neighborhood thrived despite its surroundings. I mean, this was a neighborhood that African-Americans bought and owned, obviously owned their land, which was, you know, not was not rental property, but the price of that came with being in a 
what you might call an undesirable neighborhood. It was completely surrounded by three railroads. You had a, a couple of slaughtering houses at the top of the hill, white provisions and star provisions. You had a rendering plant at the bottom of the hill along with a fertilizer plant. So it was a neighborhood of, it grew to of somewhere between two and 300 homes. So it was, it was thriving in the sense that uh, African-Americans owned the property themselves. Now, your new photo exhibition is on display along the Watershed Reservoir fence on Howell Mill Road. Where does the title Red, White, and Black come from? Well, I deliberately chose those colors because they're often used in propaganda. Uh, I based the imagery or the, the concept on Agiprof, on on uh, propaganda-looking uh, works of the past. Um, so that Helvetica font, the just strong color, the very graphic nature of it, the, the images are actually high contrast images that I've either taken or a couple that I've acquired. Uh, so that's, that's the title, uh, the basis of the title. Is there a reference to redlining in the red of the title? Absolutely. I'm glad you picked up on that. So there's there's that, uh, of course, the red and black racial issues. The rezoning um, was uh, that took place in the in the 1950s that really changed the course of Blandtown is sort of a subtle reference there as well. Uh, but yeah, the, the 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 whole neighborhood has had to face these incredible hardships of redlining, racist rezoning, uh, a fire that took place in the 30s, all these events that eventually drove uh, the neighborhood into decline. The rezoning in the 1950s, the neighborhood association was usurped by the property owners in terms of the, the companies. And they, without any input from the residents, basically changed it to an industrial neighborhood. And what that did was that set the caveat that you could not make any improvements to your house. Well, the the facility, my studio was built for $2,000 in the 1940s. So, you know, 50% of that is is really no, no improvements that can be made. And so that's what led uh, ultimately to the decline. And it's interesting because um, Larry Keating in his book, Atlanta Race Class and Urban Expansion, uses Blantown as a case study and, and cites that zoning change uh, as a very deliberate means of shifting the, the vote uh, form of mechanical form to shift the racial vote for the city. So essentially, the history, the name itself, were paved over in public memory. Was any one person or entity responsible? I mean, you had an active community homeowners association or neighborhood association, they were just disregarded? I think so. I think that was the power of, of, of business and of industry uh, at the time and politics. I think all those factors went into it. So you have this, um, you know, it's, a, it's an unfortunate name for an, a neighborhood, but you know, I think the, the history is what is so remarkable. And a lot of that history has come out just recently with Raina Giddens' research. Uh, she was a PhD candidate and just finished her dissertation. And she uses the primary sources in, in the history of Blantown 
as sort of the basis of her dissertation. She's, she's saying, look, this original narrative of Atlanta of the benevolent slave owner and the, and the indigent that lost the property was not true and how that shifts uh, and how important that, that narrative shift is. So the redevelopment of Blantown, the paving over around Hal Mill and Huff is another tragic example of Atlanta's historical relationship with race. Exactly. And so that's what I was trying to promote in this uh, exhibition. So I intentionally chose the fences there along Huff and Hal Mill. Traffic typically backs up there, but it's also where the watershed reservoir is. And so that provides some security for the for the banners. But, you know, my thought is, is that when you're sitting in traffic, it's kind of like the same mental state you are in the shower. You're sort of there, but you're not there. And you're open to, to me, open to wordplay, open to an image and a word and what those two might do with each other. And so to me, it was important to use these these fences. It timed out quite well with, with COVID, with having an, an outdoor exhibition. Hmm. Does any text accompany the images? Well, of course, there's Blantown in red on all of them, uh, the same size. And then underneath that, in lowercase with a slash, is the prefix re and then another word. So it might be uh, redoubt, resource. Uh, reclaim, uh, some stronger words like reconstruction. And so those have a meaning of both the word with the prefix, but also have a meaning with without the prefix. Parker, who do you hope sees these photos? I think both residents and also people traveling through complete strangers to the neighborhood, folks that didn't even know the name. And it's presented in such a way that it's very declarative. It's Blantown. It's it's claiming its name. And that's been my mission these last few years with, with the work I've been producing as an artist is that it's reclaim and proclaim. So I'm proclaiming the name, but I'm also reclaiming the history and acknowledging that history for better or worse. And so when you first see these images, they're, as I mentioned, you know, they're stark black and white, uh, high contrast images. And so uh, some of them are like, power plays in a way, and others are very open-ended, and I might even say loaded. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking at issues of redevelopment versus uh, gentrification. You know, gentrification happens from a power from beyond, and the other is, is more of coming from within. Hmm. I read that you learned about this history in part from collecting oral histories of Blantown. How did you begin that project? Well, I was very fortunate that the owner of the house, who the gentleman that built the house, Johnny Lee Green, stopped in one day and I just dropped everything and started talking to him. I also met his son, Warren Green. Warren was one of five children who grew up in this less than 1,000 square feet uh, what was then a house. Mr. Green had put together this house with concrete blocks and bricks, a lot that were just cold. He salvaged the floor from another building and uh, just started getting his history. He worked for the railway here. He also worked 
at the top of the hill uh, at White Provisions, where coincidentally at the same time my grandfather worked, um, I asked him if he if he knew my grandfather, and uh, they they did not cross paths. But I just thought that was a really interesting intersection. But yeah, so I've interviewed him. I've interviewed uh, Warren both on StoryCorps and then uh, other residents like Wallace Bibbs, who lived in the neighborhood, and getting these different stories. I think it's really interesting because people saw the neighborhood in different ways, uh, just like any any neighbors would uh, in different time periods and age. Uh, Mr. Bibbs is, is now 80. And unfortunately, Mr. Green died in his uh, mid-90s, but I was still able to get some wonderful stories from him. You mentioned the importance of proclaiming the name. Is your goal also to amplify the stories of Black Blantown residents, past, current, future, or to more broadly influence the development agenda around the area? I think it's important to be aware of what was here. I think people moving into the neighborhood think it's just new territory, you know? I mean, there's, out of the 200 plus homes that were here, when I moved into my studio in, in 2003, there were 21 houses. And now there's only four of those remaining uh, one being my studio, uh, one was converted to a church, uh, and then two others. So, yes, I think understanding that history, I think just to be aware of it and to know what was here and celebrate that and acknowledge it. Why now in particular? Well, I find myself in a strange place. I mean, I'm, I'm the white guy that is, you know, sharing this information about uh, an African-American community, but I'm also the bridge between the former residents, because I overlapped with a number of the residents that were here, and then the new residents. And, I, you know, I've, I've sort of realized that I, that I can serve the purpose of, of being the link between the two. And I feel that doing that through an artistic means is a, can be a very effective method. With this exhibit, you are prompting a conversation about Blantown's history, development, and future. What do you believe the future of Blantown should look like? Well, I know what it, what it is, and that's one of the images. It's an image of traffic, of, the, of Huff Road backed up in both directions. And the word I use there is uh, revise, so R-E slash V-I-S-E. And the vice part is the grip, the, you know, the squeeze. So that's, that's one way the wordplay works. But, you know, it is in becoming incredibly dense. And this is the last section that the Beltline, actual, the pedestrian corridor has not been declaratively been made. We think it's going to be parallel to Culpeper Street, which is one road in from Huff, but that still has not been determined. So there's, there's this incredible density and there's this fight now between residential and with uh, either existing industry or industry that wants to come in because it's large areas are still zoned industrial. So when you talk about residential now, you aren't speaking about the single family home. Well, there are a lot of single family homes being built. So immediately around my studio, there were 45 homes built as West Town, Feggies One. And this is a 
Brockbilt community. Currently, there's another 75 homes being built uh, just a quarter mile away, but there's still other developments just less distance than that. And what's been interesting is when when that neighborhood first came to be inhabited uh, around 2016, I uh, erected a billboard in my front yard, which states, welcome to the heart of Blandtown. And it has an image of the uh, Indian head test signal, which was used by television stations at the close of the day. And then again, at the beginning of the day, it's a calibration. Um, and so I was making a statement that the old neighborhood is, is off the air. What is the new neighborhood going to be? But it was, it was stronger than that as well. It was a statement that, no, this is not West Town as it was being rebranded by the developer. It was Blandtown. And it was about that same time that, that Raina Giddens started doing her research. And then we started collaborating and doing some of the oral history together and sharing the information that we had gotten from uh, various, various folks from the, from the original neighborhood. She, she even interviewed um, new residents in, in, in her research. Interesting. Gregor, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you for creating this awareness about a historic neighborhood and the complexity surrounding urban development. Well, I appreciate that, Lois. You know, I think I'm trying to ask more questions than I am trying to make a statement. But, you know, it's out there. It's for people to drive by, perhaps walk by, bike by, and uh, take a look at these banners and start to, you know, have some wordplay in their own mind and, and what the meaning of development is and gentrification and the historical significance of certain neighborhoods. Artist Gregor Turk, his Blamtown exhibit, Red, White, and Black, is on display along the fence surrounding the Atlanta Waterworks Reservoir on Howell Mill Road and Huff Road through April 28th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Easter is this Sunday, and thinking about the holiday reminded me of a conversation I had with the contemporary Christian musician David Crowder. With his bushy beard, long hair, and trucker hat, he's changing the way people think about Christian music. When we spoke in 2019, he had just released the album I Know a Ghost, which was nominated for a Grammy Award the following year. Here's David Crowder describing the sound of contemporary Christian music. It's much more an amalgam of what you hear walking through J.C. Penney's. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's a reflection of really what's happening in culture musically with pop music. Um, uh, so I think when people think about contemporary Christian music, what they're thinking of is is a, a pop contemporary sound that you would find in a top forty situation, and uh, it just has lyrics that are performing around ideas of faith is is pretty much the difference of what you'd hear on a Christian contemporary station versus a pop station. Mostly, it's just content and lyrics is that's going to be the 
the difference. So what inspired you to write Christian music in this uh, broader style? I got tricked into this whole thing. I didn't mean to do this at all. I, for real, I, what I wanted to do was uh, work for my dad and then eventually uh, take over his. He had an insurance company in Texarkana, Texas, where I grew up. And um, I thought he was the coolest dude on the planet. I thought this guy's got it going on. He had like the, this is, you know, when I was a kid, I go up to the office and he's got the office with like the forest seam wallpaper and the phone where it has the little shoulder holder you know where you can oh, just yes. and see so he was just typing on his computer talking on the phone I'm like this guy is the <laughs> coolest guy on the planet so i wanted to work for him so i was giving car quotes at like age 11 which is not legal but i loved it i thought he was amazing and so i went off to school baylor university is where i went and i'm it's in waco waco texas and um since I had that nepotistic hookup, uh, as long as I could pass an insurance exam, get a you know certificate, I was good to go. And so I thought, let's do something fun while I'm at school. And I thought I'd study music because I thought that'd be super easy. I love music. It's not super easy. No. <laughs> so, so many hours in the practice room, uh, it was not what I had expected. But uh, by my junior year, this friend of mine, who was a good buddy and a roommate at, at the time, was going to start a church. And uh, I, at the time, was not attending church and was kind of outside of that whole thing. I grew up in it, and I kind of had a similar college experience to a lot of people, I would think, is you get off and off to school, and you're sifting through your, the culture that you existed in and grew up in. What if, what if this faith is mine? What is it just that was environmentally and culturally given to me and inherited? And, and so there's a lot of, of that going on that's, I think, pretty stereotypical. And, and so this guy's like, hey, man, I want to start a church. Uh, you being somewhat musically inclined, why don't you help me with it? And you do, you know, run the music side of things. I'm like, that is a terrible idea, bro. <laughs> that's like not the good, <laughs> that's not good thinking. And uh, so sure enough, as uh, pastors tend to be, he was rather convincing and convicting. And so before I knew it, I was basically like working as an MD, like the music director, finding players, finding a repertoire to play, rehearsing the players, and that's more difficult uh, when they're all college students. <laughs> to track a college student down and get them uh, to some place to rehearse on time was, was, was the biggest part of my task. And then about a year into this church start, which is just a bunch of college kids, I uh, started writing songs because it was tough to find music that would fit our collegiate s- uh, setting. Because yeah. uh, we hear a bunch of college kids listening to the college radio, and we couldn't find a sound that would be authentic or something that would reflect what was going on internally and be something we could authentically just give ourselves to. Because music is so sneaky in the way it gets inside a human. I, uh, I loved how, you know, it was art was being spoke of earlier. Art, it's like, uh, it's hand and foot music is what we were kind of getting together there. You know, foot stomping, hand clapping. And if you can move the hand, you can move the heart. And mm-hmm. oftentimes you can move the heart, you can move the hand too. So if you can get to the heart, you can also get to action in, in, in your community and get things done and, and maybe change the planet in a healthy way. And so music is sneaky, and we didn't have music that was sneaky enough. You know, it was, <laughs> it was a barrier instead of something that should be completely natural. And so, like I said, about a year in, I started writing stuff. And then I just started chasing those songs around. The songs leaked out, and, and I've just been chasing the songs ever since because I found a lot of people are out there that have a similar story as mine that grew up near uh, the church or in the church and i'm writing from maybe that that perspective of someone who still believes what i read in scripture to be true and think that jesus's statements of love your neighbor as yourself and and uh there's a lot of stuff in there that 
is pretty challenging to get your head around. And it, I think it takes a community of people and believers that are similar and have a, a similar outlook that help us along the way in that. And that's what I'm doing musically. Yeah. Well, in a previous interview with Atlanta Magazine, you said you didn't think the traditional approach was the way to go about worship. What do you think is more effective? Well, I love authenticity. or When people are doing what is in their chest to do, there's a response that happens in those people around. You know, that's why a good apology after something that's been done horribly wrong is really a great moment of, of there's a there's a building of relationship there. And so I felt like when I'm speaking of maybe the traditional approach, I, I'm probably talking less about music and more about like dogma and rather than conversational dialogue that gets us to someplace better, then that's just a different environment than what I grew up under. And in, in, in Southern Baptist East Texas, that was not really the approach to things. Was, was, was Relationship wasn't the starting place, I guess. Well, it seems we should listen to some of what we've been describing. Let's hear a bit of I Know a Ghost. There's still neon in these paints There's still an echo in these veins It's the past and I've been haunted by The things I thought I wanted I never should have wanted I let the devil get the best of me When oh my God's paid a debt for me song of David Crowder's album, I Know a Ghost. Whatever one brings to this as a listener may not necessarily be spiritual. So have you been criticized in any way? Has your work been criticized for being too broad in its appeal or secular? Um, I've been criticized for lots of things. <laughs> if you're not talking about me in a derogatory way, I'm doing something wrong. No, so I, I don't, uh, I really love what I'm doing. And I think if I keep doing as simple as, man, what's in my chest, who's in front of me, and keep it, that's hard enough, you know, thinking about who's in front of you. And if you're being true to what you're at your growth and how you're being stretched and um that's what i'm trying to do most and that's what i've loved about like listening to that i hear so much growth from when i got to atlanta the first record i did was called neon steeple when i got to atlanta i landed on cabbage in cabbage town on carroll street yeah let's talk about that david you decided to move to atlanta about five six yeah, years ago. Been, yeah absolutely and you had this 
rather stately home in Waco, Ira. What what brought you to Atlanta? Well, we had a um, there's a bunch of good friends that are here, and they had started the church called Passion City Church, which is right down the street over here. And um, I'd known the pastor for ages. Uh, he's been a part of what I've been doing musically since I started doing what I'm doing musically. And and so they had had this thing going on, and and my wife was going back to school, and so she was studying design stuff, and and we didn't know where we were going to land for sure. And so for real, um, thinking Atlanta's a good possibility, my wife Tony just in Google types in Atlanta Loft Apartment. And the first thing that came up was this, you know, the the Fulton bag and cotton mill, and there we wound up at the stacks. And I didn't, we didn't have any clue about Atlanta. Um, didn't know whether we were downtown or outside of town. We didn't come shop around and do the thing. We was just like, that looks amazing. Let's do that. <laughs> and so I was trying to on in this solo endeavor. I was thinking, man, I know what I want to do. I want to get back to my roots and music that I grew up with old school country stuff in the house, uh, Willie Nelson and, and the gang. Can't you know. go wrong with him. Absolutely. And then we and then I was super into all the old bluegrass stuff at the time. And and so I just knew I wanted banjos and fiddles and also was really super into, into electronic dance music, EDM at the time. So I was thinking, man, these two things, can they can my favorite things be in the same place at the same time? Can banjos and fiddles sit up next to the 808, you know, drum machine? Can this work? And uh, if so, I'm going to have a great time with this. And so I squished, I squished those two things together the first go around. And while I was doing that, I realized that I was on the street where my these roots that I was trying to find. As well, I was, you know, displaced from Texas, growing up in Texas. There I am in a in a big city for the first time outside of uh, what I knew and was comfortable with. And and um, I'm sinking roots in Atlanta trying to find home as well. I was impressed by something you said about living in Cabbage Town and getting to know everyday people. And some of the everyday people you meet are in bars. And you had a very interesting take on moving amongst people whose lives or lifestyles might not necessarily meet with the strictest of Christian standards, but why this resonated so much to you to be in the Cabbage Town community? Well, I love the diversity of it. It was a a beautiful cross-section, very artistic community, but at the same time you had a lot of, you know, you'd have in this particular Milltown Tavern Arms is sitting right there on Carroll Street, and you'd have, you know, people from the DA's office sitting right next to, you know, defense lawyers having a great lunch together, and you'd have people like me that showed up there without a I didn't have a job there. So the first time I landed on Carroll Street, you know, you got this dude without a job sitting next to somebody who's running a software company or working at Porsche or whatever. And I just loved that it was it was a it was a neighborhood. It was a neighborhood in a in a true sense that that the diversity, socio and economic diversity was intentional in, in like a place like the stacks, like the Fulton uh, bag and cotton mill had been intentionally formed as a residential community of, that wanted to have a diverse group of people living next door to each other. And and it, it turns out that the things that we have in common far outweigh our differences. And, and it, you said something that was very striking in that you said Jesus was not worshiping every day. He was out among the people gathering what he needed to know. And getting in trouble most of the time for the people <laughs> he's around. You know, it's like, again, if I'm not, if somebody's not saying something derogatory, I'm doing something wrong. I just feel like what I love is I love people 
and I love growth. I love growing. I, I want. I hope I'm growing every day. Well, and you talked about the aspect of diversity in Cabbage Town that you appreciate in your album. I know a ghost. You collaborated with. Christian artists like the Latina hip-hop group Social Club Misfits and the American Idol contestant Mandisa. Let's hear a little bit of La Luz. influence. Why, why was it important for you to have greater diversity in this album? Well, a ton of it is being, like I said, being in Atlanta has changed me, has changed my outlook on a lot of things. And, and I feel like what I can do rather than talk about a lot of things is just put the things I love in the same place at the same time and, and maybe model what it can mean to live next door to one another and get along. And there's so much more beauty and our differences that are celebrated rather than dividing. And so that's what I'm trying to do with the music. Contemporary Christian artist David Crowder. His 2019 album is called I Know a Ghost. His new album, Milk and Honey, will be released in early June. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta Arts and Cultural Life. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash city lights. Have a safe and good weekend. Wishing a happy Easter to everyone who celebrates. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.